This is Death Row Dialogue. From their first words, their last. Hi, I'm Kaylin. Hi, I'm Luke. And this is Death Row Dialogue. I wanted to start by thanking Bliss Enigma for rating our podcast on Apple Podcasts. They said, this is a fascinating conversational podcast about Texas death row inmates, crime, and last words. So thank you so much for taking the time to read us. It means a lot. Everyone else, go add your rating so that I can shout you out next week. Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Today is about Jesse De La Rosa, and he was born on September 22nd, 1960. There's not a lot of background information, and by not a lot, I mean none, other than he had a prior arrest for trespassing. So we just jump right into on August 22nd, 1979, when he's 18 years old, he robs a stop-and-go convenience store in San Antonio with a 32 caliber gun, and he shoots the clerk behind the register there, Patricia Johnson, twice, but she survives. They then go, it's him and an accomplice, they go to a 7-Eleven in San Antonio where they shoot Masood Gonzalez, who was a 27-year-old store clerk. They shoot him once in the back of the head and once in the face. And they put him in the walk-in closet to die in there. So, I mean, these are, like, premeditated, like, they're going to kill people. Because normally if you, like... If you're robbing somewhere, you're trying not to kill people. It's just the threat of the gun. Right, right. Most people, I'm sure the, the, there's no way two people were like trying to fight this guy with a gun. Especially mm-hmm. if he has a accomplice. So, yeah, it makes it, I didn't even think of it that way, that if he shoots both of them, then it was probably like he didn't want to witness or... Yeah, something. Something, you're right, I doubt both of them were trying to be heroes. Right. Over their convenience store, you know. So they left with only a six-pack of beer because they were unable to open the cash register. So they did all of that just for the beer. From both places? I didn't get... one. I didn't get everything they got. I don't know how much they got from the first store. It only had information on the second one where there was the actual murder. Oh, okay. But from the second one, all they got was the six-pack. Right. So... Um, Ghazali's body was found in the walk-in cooler in a puddle of his own blood at 4 a.m. by the delivery man. So, there were fingerprints on a beer can at the 7-Eleven that matched fingerprints on the cooler handle of Jesse De La Rosa. And he said that, of course, he said it was his accomplice that did it. Actually, no. Everyone else was trying to say it was his accomplice. He wouldn't fess up who it was. He was just saying it wasn't him. So he was saying, I won't say who did it, but it wasn't me. I'm confused about the fingerprints that they were on the beer can. So they were found on a beer can in the 7-Eleven. And then they were also found in the walk-in. Like where they put the body? Yeah. I guess his prints were already on. Um, I'm sure they got him once they arrested him. I don't think... I didn't have a lot on the time frame. This is just evidence. I'm, I'm thinking of, like, of this as the investigation. I think that's just evidence to prove that he okay. right. 
did that at least that part of the crime so he was arrested shortly after at a i can't remember if it was his motel or his house right. one of the two the swat surrounded he escaped out of a back window but they had an officer there that got him and the officer gave him his miranda warning in spanish and then also gave it to him in quote street style spanish like dumbed it down for him to say exactly what his Miranda warning was. Because De La Rosa said that, yes, I confessed, but it wasn't valid because of the Miranda warning. He says that he didn't understand them and that they were, like, they didn't make sense to him and that they said, like, you might get an attorney later on. So he's saying that everything should be thrown out because he didn't understand his Miranda warning. But... That officer told him in Spanish twice. Then once he got to the police department, the lawyer, or not the lawyer, the detective that has been dealing with him, told him in English and then told him in common everyday English without all of the legal jargon. So he got his Miranda read to him at least four times. And then the detective said, okay, do you want to confess to me? Do you want to tell me what happened? And he said that he wasn't sure. And the detective said, okay, do you want a lawyer? And he said, I'd rather talk to my brother first. And his brother was in the police department already, but in a different part. So they brought him in, let them talk for a while. And then once the brother left, he said, okay, I'm ready to tell you. And he gave a statement about the first robbery and shooting. And they typed it all up. And the detective read his Mirandas again. Then they did the 7-Eleven killing, typed it all up, gave him Miranda warning again, and then they printed him out and he signed both of them in front of two witnesses. So he can't say that he didn't know what he was doing. Right. You know, like, it was a long process of him giving his confession. Yeah. He then tried to say that he was too dumb to understand, that his IQ wasn't high enough. But there was a psychologist that was called in by the prosecution that gave him a um like a a test they gave him his Miranda warnings and then asked him like different questions to see if he understood them right and he did he understood everything they were saying to him and the psychologist was like he was competent to understand them here so he would have been able to understand them then and that um even during stress he would have been able to understand them yeah they also gave him an adult IQ test to kind of combat the idea that he was mentally retarded, so they couldn't use that defense. And it said that his verbal IQ was borderline, and his performance IQ was well within normal rights. So he was maybe not as smart as normal people, but he wasn't mentally retarded on that level. Right. So... He then made an argument that he didn't see the magistrate soon enough, so he didn't get to go in and get a bond fast enough. So he thinks that that should be make his confession thrown out. Didn't make a lot of sense to me, because the magistrate got there to the jail during his confession, and the detective was like, I'm not going to stop the confession so that you can go get a bond set and get your charges so that was another thing that he tried to say wasn't done correctly. I mean, it seems like he's looking for anything. Yeah. 
I mean, really. So then he had an issue with one of the jurors, and the juror was Elmo Franklin, and during some of the process, he revealed that he had a stepfather who was a murderer, and his stepfather had ch killed somebody, went to prison, got life with parole, got paroled, and then killed someone again. So he made this statement to all of the jurors, and... So Delarosa is saying, okay, well, after he said that, they're all going to put me to death because now they're thinking I'm going to do it again. Which, they had a trial to ask all the jurors, you know, how you felt about this, when did it happen, do you remember it? And six members remember a discussion about parole, and seven members remember the story from Franklin. So, but they all said that it had no effect on their decision. And they couldn't even remember what part of the process it was brought up. And that it was mentioned in passing and it wasn't something that they like dwelled on. Mm. I mean, but this one is definitely more of a case than the other ones. Yeah. Well, and so once that was kind of thrown out, then... He was like, okay, well, the prosecution snuck this juror in, and he should never have been allowed on the jury. But the prosecution had no idea that he had this background. Like, the questions that they asked them wouldn't have revealed this. Right. And so it was found that he didn't do it on purpose. He didn't leave it out. He was just never directly asked and didn't think to mention it. I bet that kind of changed what questions are asked. Because that's kind of a big thing. Yeah, but what, or they just ask, is anyone here related to a murderer? I don't know, you could maybe ask, does anyone you know personally been accused of this crime? You don't have to straight up say, like, do you know a murderer? Are you related? I mean, that's kind of crazy. Jury duty for that yeah. trial. And then he told that story. Well, there was, so there was the discussion about the life sentence in the jury room and I think this is when this was brought up because somebody was like well he could get parole in this amount of years and the I can't think of what the person's name is but it's like the spokesperson of the jury the one that leads all of it he was like we're not talking about that we're talking if we're talking life sentence we have to think in our head life sentence not life with parole we're thinking life sentence, he's going to be in there for his whole life. The parole is up to the parole board, board not board. us. So then that was shut down. So that was the whole issues with the jury. Other than that, um, he had a few stays that were denied. And there was even a new, um, his lawyer said that he had new evidence, that there was a third person involved with the crime. And that he could testify that the accomplice was the one who actually fired the gun, not De La Rosa. But the judge dismissed it and was like, "This, how are you coming up with this five years later? Yeah. So it was dismissed. But also, wouldn't, couldn't he still be charged with the death penalty because he was an I'm sure it would be more of them just buying time. Right. And having a whole new trial. Yeah. It looks like his accomplice, Alcosta Garcia, got life. Okay. So, 
Um, but that could also have been because maybe he didn't have a criminal record. Because this one, De La Rosa had at least a criminal trespass. And it was also said that um, since this was like a scheduled thing, it wasn't like it was an accident. It wasn't just one store. Well, and like I was saying, it was like it, he went in there and just shot. You know, mm-hmm. it wasn't like, or as far as I know, from from what I can tell. Yeah. From your that like, you know, people if they get a gun pointed at them, especially the first one was a woman. I mean, I wouldn't stand up to a gun if you're alone in a gas station. Pretty terrifying. At night. At night. Yeah. So, like, uh, I don't know. Maybe they did both try and make a move on him, and then he shot. But then the other one was shot in the back of the head, execution style. So, like, they had to have, you know, had control of him already. Yeah. You know, they could have just left. Well, and it's like, did they just ask him to get the money out of the register and he didn't? Or, you know, what was your plan after you shot him and then you couldn't even get the register open? Well, it's like they took beer, too, so I'm thinking they were probably drunk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, De La Rosa was 24 when he was executed. He did the crime when he was 18, 19. And pronounced dead at 12, 17 a.m., four minutes after injections into both arms. He was the first Hispanic and the youngest male to be put to death in Texas. His final meal was Spanish rice, refried beans, flour tortillas, T-bone steak, tea, chocolate cake, and jalapeno peppers. And his final statement was him staring at the ceiling, telling his stepmother that he loves them, and then he said, God forgive my brothers and sisters for sins I've committed. And then he said all that in Spanish. And then he added in English, God, I give my life for my brothers and sisters. And... It's just insane to me that he would say, no, I didn't do it, but I'd rather die than say who did it. Yeah. I mean, at that point, you're just as at fault. You're trying to cover something up like that. Yeah, I don't... This one is just another one of those that... Didn't need to happen. Yeah, I mean, really. And he's lucky it wasn't two people. Right. Well, I'm sure that woman was severely injured. Well, and they're lucky that she was able to ID him. Because after they got the fingerprints and they brought him in for a lineup and she was like, that's who did it. Oh, okay. So, so she yeah. helped the case a lot. Good. So. Well, then how can he say that he didn't pull the trigger? I don't, I don't know. It's just, you know, we've seen this a few times, and we'll see it many, many more times. It's like they're this delusional that they think that they have done no part in it, or that they're completely innocent, or they're innocent in even one part of it. Especially if the victims are saying, like, saw you do it. Oh, one thing I do take away from this is, like, it seems like his family was good, because after he had that talk with his brother... He confessed to the whole thing. So, you know, his brother was probably like, hey, you do the right thing. And tell them. And, you know, be honest. And, like, whatever happens, happens. I'm sure he didn't expect his brother to get the death penalty. 
but and then on when he did die he did you know say like give thanks to his family yeah so that is it for that one uh yeah don't don't try and save your money in the cash register well give it away and when you started working did they give that whole talk to you no but i think in our generation it's it's kind of well known well i remember when i got my first job i remember sitting there with my manager and he was saying this is fast food yes fast food and he was saying like don't be a hero i don't care about this money in the drawer you're not gonna save this money like just let him take it and if i remember correctly i at least got that talk like at at another job that was fast food so they were saying like you know it your life is not worth the hundred dollars that are in this cash register right and i always remember thinking like is that common enough for them to have to tell me that or i just tell everyone that i mean you don't want to think about it happening but it it does happen i mean i guess to just make you know in the moment you don't have to right I don't think I would. I mean, I'm not sorry for that fast food police, but... Oh, definitely not. Oh, and it's like, they have insurance on these things, but they don't... You don't have insurance on your life if you're working fast fast food. food. At, like, 60? Yeah. So... Well... Parents might, but... I don't know. That's crazy. So, we'll be back next week. And, uh... Thanks for listening. Make sure to write a review. Yeah, reviews. That's what we're pushing for. (laughs) Also, no one from Mississippi has listened. Very disappointed. We're still going to keep making episodes. (laughs) Maybe one day. Someone from Mississippi will decide to listen to us. All right. Thanks for listening. Thanks, guys. Bye.